And now from the New Testament, Mark chapter 9. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing about? Sorry, what are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that robbed him of of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus said, uh, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father ex- exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, This kind can, can come out only by prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Good afternoon. Uh, as Rob said, my name's Matt. Uh, I've been worshipping here with my wife, Sasha, at Christchurch for uh, just over a year now. Uh, we moved up to Cambridge um, last year, uh, well, 2016, so I could take up my training uh, at Westminster College. And it's a great privilege for me to be here with you today. I'd like us to start with some imagination. Feel free to close your eyes if you'd like, but I'd like you to imagine yourself in the early days of the church. In the short time that Jesus has been gone, you've witnessed some incredible things. People have been set free from diseases. The person Jesus has been faithfully proclaimed, and every day the kingdom of God is breaking new ground in people's lives. But the opposition has started. It starts small. Firstly, you're not welcome in certain places of worship. And then families start to denounce people who talk about Jesus. And before you know it, 
Christian believers are being dragged away by the authorities to be beaten and whipped and thrown in prison. Almost overnight, the great successes that you have witnessed have turned to disaster. The church finds itself on the back foot, facing this great onslaught from its opponents. How can you continue to have faith in the midst of all this disappointment? Now imagine yourself in another church. You've been really blessed by the teaching of a particular leader, and you're excited to be part of his ministry. That is, until he's engulfed in a scandal so big that he's forced to resign and to leave the church. How can you continue to believe the things that this man taught you when he himself has been unable to withstand the temptations of the world? It is no coincidence that our passage today begins to address some of these questions. Mark has carefully selected his material with the situation of the early church in mind. They, like us, were faced with the question, how can we have faith? If you were here two weeks ago, you would have looked at the transfiguration, this glorious moment where Jesus takes Peter and John and James up to the mountain, and they had this amazing, faith-affirming experience where they see the full reality, the full glory of Jesus, this, this person they've dedicated their lives to follow. But for the disciples who've been left behind, well, they weren't having such a great time. Just like the early church who had witnessed Jesus return to the Father, these disciples were facing the difficulties of having faith when Jesus wasn't physically present. And the same difficulties have faced the church for the last 2,000 years. How can we have faith? So when Jesus comes back down the mountain, he sees, in verse 14, the disciples arguing with the teachers of the law. And whatever the commotion is about, it's a big deal. It's drawn a crowd. Here are Jesus' disciples at loggerheads with Jesus' most thorough opponents. He asks what's going on, and he's given a report by a man in the crowd. Verses 17 and 18. Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You have to wonder how the disciples reacted. Jesus is gone. This man brings them this child. The crowd are watching. Jesus' opponents are watching. How will they react when this this demon-possessed child is brought to them? To give them the credit, they do step up to the challenge. You can imagine what they've been thinking. They've been with Jesus. They've, They've watched him doing something similar. In fact, if you were to turn back to Mark 6, we've already seen that they themselves had been given authority to drive out demons. So why would it be any different now? But the thing is, sometimes it's those past experiences that can be our downfall. Let me give you an example. In August last year, a boxing match took place between Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor. 
with the usual restraint of boxing promoters. It was billed as the biggest fight in combat sports history. But what was special about this particular fight was that Conor McGregor wasn't a professional boxer. He wasn't even an amateur boxer. He was from a, a, a background called uh, a fighting called mixed martial arts, which for those of you who don't know, it's, it's basically it's like fighting, any, anything goes. You can kick, you can use your knees, your elbows, you can, you can grapple and wrestle your opponent. But he wasn't a boxer. He was a, he was a world champion two times over in mixed martial arts, but he wasn't a boxer. Now, Conor McGregor looked at his success in mixed martial arts and thought to himself, do you know what? I think I can take on the best of the best in boxing. Perhaps he'd had too many blows to the head, I don't know. Um, but McGregor doesn't pick some scrawny newcomer to the boxing scene. No. He picks Floyd Mayweather, who, with 49 career wins, just over half of which were knockouts, uh, and zero career losses, is the unmatched welterweight boxing world champion. This is the guy that not even the amateur boxer McGregor decides to have a go at fighting for his first uh, boxing debut. I think you know where I'm going with this. Of course, McGregor doesn't beat the professional boxer. In the 10th round, the referee has to actually stop the fight because McGregor's boxing is so terrible that he cannot even safely defend himself against the more experienced and the more composed opposition. The biggest fight in combat sports history ends up becoming the biggest flop of the year. You see, the disciples, yes, they had driven out spirits before, but they'd forgotten that they had done so under the authority of Jesus, who had been the one to send them out. When they forget, and they try to just give it a go, trusting in themselves, they fail. The opponent they come up against is just too big and too powerful for them. And 2,000 years later, the rules of the fight haven't changed. The church is still up against an enemy who is too powerful for it. And this looks different for each of us. You don't have to be possessed by an evil spirit before these very real spiritual forces try to overcome and defeat you. Perhaps as an individual, the enemy is using your sin against you. Perhaps he's using your loneliness, your health, the problems in your families and other relationships. And that's not to say the enemy is necessarily causing these things, but these might be the very grounds with which he's stealing away life, with which he's stealing away your hope, your joy. Perhaps you're sat here today and you don't believe in the reality of evil spirits. Or, or perhaps you do, but you haven't really given them much thought. But I would hazard that you know something is going on. And I'd like you to consider that there's something deeper than biology or psychology to account for it. Either way, there's bound to be people in this room who feel like they're in that ring against an opponent who is just too powerful for them. We've all been there. Usually there's only two options when you're in that ring, when you're Conor McGregor against 
the undisputed Floyd Mayweather. Option one, you continue trying to fight and continue being overcome. Option two, you give up the fight altogether and you allow your opponent to win. Both of these options end in defeat. Putting faith in ourselves is fine, but it only gets us so far. But what if there's a third option? What if you could get someone else to take on the fight for you? Someone who can actually beat the opponent in the ring. So here we have the disciples on one side, helpless before the face of an enemy who is too strong for them, and the teachers of the law on the other side. And in the middle of the debate is a desperate father who loves his son. And the son is brought to Jesus. I wish we had more time to go into this, but I'd like us to to notice the ferocity with which this spirit treats this child Look at verse 20. Uh, When it sees Jesus, it throws the child onto the ground and makes him writhe. And the father tells us, verse 22, that it often attempts to throw him into the fire or the water to kill him. This is so different to how we normally picture uh, Satan, isn't it? You know, the the little red devil, the little cartoon who who appears on our shoulder, tempting us to eat that extra slice of pie uh, like I did uh, at lunchtime today, you know. Just trying to trip us up, but but probably not that harmful. You see, I think a passage like this reveals the true intent of the enemy. The complete destruction of life. A war waged against Almighty God in which mankind is the target. If you were here this morning, you would have heard Andrew Fellows give a good account of the preciousness and the sacredness of each human person. Because they are made to reflect the image of God. We are made to reflect the image of God. And it's this which Satan longs to destroy. To kill. Even in a child. Perhaps you and I haven't realised that. We walk through life unaware of the intensity of the battle that we're in. But this boy's father, he lives with it. He sees it every day. And he is desperate, utterly desperate. Uh, And he's heard of this group of people led by this this guy, Jesus, who who were the ones to go to if you need help with this sort of thing. But just as quickly as his hopes are raised that this son whom he loves might be restored to him, they are dashed by the failure of the disciples. And we hear that doubt echoed in what he says to Jesus, verse 22, If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. This father has put his hope in Jesus' disciples, but they've let him down. Now, as Christians, you and I were not immune to the trap of being overly reliant on other people. Often, our life of faith is steered by a particularly gifted leader or a particularly effective ministry. And that's not always a bad thing. I'm truly grateful to God for the leadership that he has provided for us here at Christchurch. Steve and and John with the rest of the team, they give us sound biblical teaching with humility and with a genuine concern to see the members of this church thrive and flourish in faith. 
We see Rob here organising this 4pm service and lunch plus. But those people I've named, well, they'd be the first to tell you that they have limits. There's only so much they can do. If these people were to disappear, what would happen to the Christian witness in this church? Where would we draw our hope, our confidence from? Let's go back to our boxing ring. Perhaps you've acknowledged that you're losing the fight and you need someone to step into the ring for you. Well, if that's the case, it still needs to be the right person. Regardless of how highly we esteem them, these church leaders or or other Christians who we admire, they are no more capable of beating the enemy than we are. And so the Father has used this line, if you can. How does Jesus respond? Verse 23. If you can. Everything is possible for one who believes. There's two things going on here. Firstly, this this is a rebuke. He picks up on that doubt lying behind the Father's choice of words, if you can. What do you mean, if? Secondly, and most importantly, it's an invitation Anything is possible for one who believes. It's not Jesus' faith on trial here. Uh, And he's not speaking to the scribes or, or, or to the disciples. He's speaking to the Father. It's the Father's faith which is being challenged here. He's saying to this Father, I can see that you're desperate. I can see that you've been let down by these people, but that doesn't mean that you should doubt me. Don't believe in them. Believe in me. And what we get in response is one of the most refreshingly honest answers in the Gospels. I wish every follower of Christ could adopt this attitude. I certainly wish I could. Verse 24. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. It's as if the Father is saying, I I, I think you can do it, Jesus. But this thing's just too big. You're calling me to trust you, but I've I've just been let down. I want to believe. I really want to believe. But something is stopping me. Help. We're given a, a, a privileged glimpse into the process by which this father starts to put his faith in the one person who can actually stand against this enemy, this evil spirit, and win. Not in the disciples who have no power of their own. And Jesus' response is not to prove to himself that he can do it. He doesn't respond so he can win an argument with the teachers of the law. Jesus responds because he sees a child who is being destroyed by this evil enemy. And he intervenes with power and authority simply to restore life in its fullness. There's a really clever bit uh, in Mark's narrative, the way he tells it. He, he's very uh, sparse when he comes to telling us details, but when he does give us details, it's important to pick up on them. And there's a really important detail he gives us in verses 26 and 27. Uh, look with me now. After the spirit is driven out, the boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. 
But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. Now, in this passage, the boy hasn't died, but it's still a curious detail to include. You see, Mark is deliberately trying to point us in the direction of another confrontation Jesus must have. You see, the enemy is indeed real and present and is seeking to destroy us. But Jesus has already done something which proves his absolute authority over Satan. The glory of Jesus is not revealed in these skirmishes against individual spirits. No, Jesus' glory is revealed at the cross where he bows his head and allows his life to be destroyed. Only to be raised from death in victory. Jesus has already proven that none of the enemy's tricks are effective against him and he invites us to share that victory with him. When the early church faced persecution, it was able to keep going. It was able to stand firm. Because whatever the enemy threw at it, the early church already knew that they had been granted true life. And no doubt the lessons which the disciples learned in our passage played a major part of that. When our leaders fail us, or the enemy begins to work against us, we can still be confident because we are already on the side of victory. This is why Jesus tells his disciples in verse 29 to close our passage that this kind, this this kind of spirit can only come out through prayer. And it's not because prayer is some magic incantation which gives us superpowers, but because prayer realigns us with Jesus, the source of our life, and the one who defeated everything the enemy threw at him. When we face these things from life, do not make the mistake of thinking We stand alone. For we stand with the one who has already won a great victory for us. Jesus. 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 Let me pray for us to finish. Lord Jesus Christ, we do indeed come before you and confess our helplessness and our weakness. We do indeed see the way that the enemy is at work against your church and know that we are much less powerful than he is. Nevertheless, Lord, we take great confidence in the victory that you have already won over him in the life that you have granted us, in the love that you bestow on us, in in your searching to give us uh, and to bestow us true life and everlasting life. We thank you for your sacrifice at the cross which allows this to happen and pray, Lord, that we would continue to have confidence, to draw our strength, to have our faith uh, where it belongs, in you alone, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.